Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. On shows like House and Grey's Anatomy, a mystery diagnosis is often the thrilling plot of one night's episode. But for thousands of people nationwide, living with a rare disease isn't entertainment, it's reality. Since 2008, the medical community and patients have banded together on the last day of February to observe Rare Disease Day. The day, which will take place on February 28th this year, is meant to spread awareness for undiagnosed disorders and the need for continued research to help identify, treat, and someday eliminate these enigmatic illnesses. Joining me in the studio to talk more about Rare Disease Day and undiagnosed disease research... Dr. Joan Stoller, clinical geneticist at Boston Children's Hospital and assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. She is also a key research partner with the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, powered by the National Institutes of Health. Welcome, Joan. Thank you. And also with me, Keita Christensen, Outreach and Engagement Coordinator and Campference Director for the nonprofit organization Next Step, based in Cambridge. Hello, Keita. Hello. So I'm glad to have you both. And I want to ground us in this conversation and everybody who's listening, because I think we in our minds may have a different understanding of what rare disease really means. So it's defined, I'm getting this from the National Organization for Rare Diseases, as diseases that affect less than 200,000 people in the United States, but one in 10 people suffer from a rare disease. More than half are children, and there are 7,000 of these diseases. 80% of them are genetically based. I know that's a lot of numbers for people, but I think if we sit around the 1 to 10, that really sort of keeps us understanding what we're talking about. So, Dr. Stoll, I wanted to start with you and ask, what might be the key piece of information you want people to understand about rare diseases? To make sure that people are aware of them, that we are learning more about how to diagnose these conditions, that people shouldn't give up, that they certainly, if they have a condition that defies a specific etiology, they should continue to search and not to give up. One of the things I read um, in preparation for this conversation by a scientist uh, was saying that the frustration for a lot of scientists like yourself is the unknown and that doctors don't like to really work in the unknown. They want to figure out what's going on. But that's one of the challenges here. As a clinical geneticist, we deal with a lot of unknowns. And I'm very frank when I tell patients, like I say, you know, we may not find the answer. And it may be because we just don't know at this point. So certainly that is very frustrating for the families also. But I think we are making progress. There's been new technology that's come up that's really helped us elucidate some of the etiologies for these patients. So Keita Christensen, you're one of the one in 10. I am. Yes, I yes I have a, what's called pycnodysostosis, which is a rare genetic disorder. It's often dis- misdiagnosed as osteogenesis imperfecta, which is also a rare genetic disorder. So I really tell anyone with a diagnosis that just doesn't quite fit, like keep looking, keep talking to doctors because 
Hopefully you'll find the answer that actually works. Well, we, I was talking about the unknown with Dr. Oh, Stoller. Right. So, so, so explain to me, how long did it take you to even get that diagnosis? Because in some ways you're lucky to know because so many people with rare diseases do not know. Sure. I indeed was very lucky because I was diagnosed at birth partly because my wonderful brother was born before I was. So he's about a year older than I am. And from random happenstance, uh, an amazing geneticist, Dr. Carey, was walking down the hall, saw my brother and, and stopped my mom and says, I think your son has these traits. Do you mind? Blah, blah, blah. And led down the road that he had pycnodysostosis, and then I was born with the same characteristic. But I've been in contact with some others with the same genetic disorder, and they have they get diagnosed later in their teens, in their young adolescents when they don't grow as fast, and they have the dwarfism, the short stature, and that's when they finally get the right diagnosis. So what does it mean for you to live with this disease that thankfully has been diagnosed? It just, I... That's kind of a loaded question because I've had it my whole life, so to live with it, I don't know any different. I do know that I have different limitations than my friends. I have brittle bones, so I knew I could never play football, not that I wanted to. But uh, I found other routes and other passions that I knew I could pursue. I did a degree in theater. I've become an advocate for other people with rare genetic disorders to find what they love in life and to really pursue it with all they have. So are you? is there a drug that can work for you? Because what's one of the issues? Is there not enough drugs? Correct. So there's still no cure for mine. It's an enzyme deficiency, and they... They don't have a cure. They, they're not doing a lot of research. There's only a handful of us in the United States that have been documented. I'm one of what I know of eight who have it. So there's there's no funding. There's no priority in us, which, I mean, there, there are more that need the priority. So we're doing pretty good. <laughs> so, Dr. Stoller, back to you. This is Dr. Joan Stoller at Boston Children's Hospital. Boston is, interestingly enough, kind of the epicenter for research in rare diseases. First of all, we have this undiagnosed network. There's seven centers, and Harvard coordinates all of them, so it's coming out of here. But also, in terms of our biotechnology, some of the drugs that do exist for people who have some of these diseases have come out of work done here. Right, exactly. So talk to me about that. What does it mean to have as much going on here as Boston seems to have, and particularly for the population that we're talking about? Well, I think one of the keys is to finding a diagnosis first. So then you have to find the diagnosis to understand what the basis of the condition is. Then you have to understand the underlying pathophysiology. Why does it cause the disease? For keto, it was uh, the, it's an enzyme deficiency. Is it a structural protein? Is it an enzyme deficiency? So really have to understand that. Then the next step can come is when companies, and there are many in, in Boston, that can become interested in that particular condition, that particular enzyme or structural protein, and try to understand what it does and ways to either block its effect or mimic its effect or replace what's missing. So I think certainly there are a lot of advantages to being in Boston, but there's a lot of research elsewhere, too. Once you make the diagnosis, it's really important to understand it, and then hopefully the next step will occur. Unfortunately, that's not occurring at the same pace as the diagnosis is, but certainly to increase awareness, to increase funding. It's, you know, funding is always limited. Some of the commercial companies are looking so that they can market a particular drug so there is financial incentive for them. And that's not a bad thing because certainly that may, you know, push the research. 
So let's talk about that. Because we're talking about smaller numbers than, let's say, a company that decides to develop a drug for diabetes, which millions and millions of people, all the process that you just outlined is very time-consuming and labor-intensive. Somebody has to pay for that. So drug companies, are some, are making decisions, well, you know, let me put my resources where I know eventually we may have a shot of getting some payback to all of the money that we invested. But that doesn't always happen when we're talking about smaller groups of people with drugs that might impact smaller groups of people. That's quite true, certainly. And that's why, you know, having research done maybe by philanthropy or by government research is really important because companies may not decide to do it because of the, you know, the small payback. So, Keita, the impact for those of you who are living with this can be quite dramatic, though, because you've got to figure out how do you live your life. But at the same time, I think the public awareness is a huge part of this. Talk a little bit about what it takes to get people to understand rare diseases. And I'll just give a little intro. I was thinking as I went down a list, I said, okay, well, I know myothenia gravis and I know hydrocephalus, but I'm pretty much along the list. I don't think I knew many. And I think I'm probably unusual that I even could pick out those two. (laughs) Yeah, it's a subject that not a lot of people have a giant base knowledge of because they're so rare because it doesn't affect as many people. So to get outreach and awareness about them, it takes all sorts of different vehicles. So Facebook has been amazing. Social media in general has been amazing to get all this information out there. People with genetic disorders can reach out to others with them. If, if you're open about it, it's all about who's disclosing as well. It can be tricky because a lot of us, we might not have a physical manifestation that's as obvious. So some of us don't want to appear or disclose that we have anything because then you become the outsider. But outreach, again, a lot of social media, a lot of fundraiser, and just trying to get the word out any way you can. It's a little tricky. Have you seen in recent years that public awareness has helped turn more attention to these diseases? I'm thinking about ALS. I don't know that that would be necessarily characterized as rare in the sense that we're talking about it here. But the ice bucket challenge, you know, who knew about ALS, you know, right before the ice bucket challenge, right? Yeah, no, campaigns like that are amazing because they take ALS or any other disease group and they make it a household name. Now everyone has done the ice bucket challenge or knows someone who did the ice bucket challenge. And people have tried to mimic that in other campaigns as well. A lot of YouTube videos have been posted and trying to go viral. And I think the web is where people are headed for campaigning and for awareness. Do you think that if more people understood, and this is to both of you, uh, I'll start with you, doctor, that half of these diseases affect children? I mean, that's a fairly powerful statement. I can't think of another disease right offhand, you probably know some, where half are affecting children half of diseases affecting children. It makes sense because, I mean, birth defects, genetic issues. I mean, it's a powerful statistic, right? You know, I'm just thinking that if maybe that's a way for people to understand rare diseases because that's a way in. It's less on the type of disease, but more on the fact that, boy, there, there are numbers of folk who are suffering and they're quite young. Well, we have in the Undiagnosed Disease Network, I mean, we have actually a lot of adults apply 
So, I mean, certainly there are a lot of rare diseases out in adults that manifest later in life, so maybe not get quite the attention because they're not so obvious. It affects all ages, but it's more obvious, I would say, sometimes in the children. I have found, to echo what Kita said, is that the families can be powerful advocates. They can form Facebook groups and really push research and really push awareness. And I, I, my heart goes out to them. I mean, they're great. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with community organizer Keita Christensen and clinical geneticist Joan Stoller. And we're talking about Rare Disease Day. That's going to be February 28th this year and how local research is helping to identify and eliminate rare diseases worldwide. So, Dr. Stoller, let me talk to you about the Orphan Drug Act, which was approved in 1983. People point to that as really a turning point when we talk about research in rare diseases. Was it, and how, are you still feeling the effects of that now? I still think it's very difficult for the companies to actually. What would you make say a little drugs? bit about what it meant, though? So, first of all, it meant that there should be effort made to look for medications for diseases that treat orphan diseases, things that are very rare, certainly, and that has been an important thing to find for patients with these rare diseases because before there was absolutely no one looking at these diseases at all, certainly. So it, it gave an incentive to Absolutely gave it. an incentive for that, absolutely. So I'm hearing now, I was trying to follow on some of the website material that there was a big push last year about for something called the Open Act, which would have allowed companies with other drugs used for other things now to maybe think about doing some research and repurposing them to apply to some rare diseases. I lost the thread of it, but it seems to have ended up in the moonshot bill, which just got passed. Can you explain to me what that might mean for people in the rare disease research community? I think it goes back to understanding the pathophysiology of these rare conditions. So for this one's not quite that rare, but a condition called Loewy-Dietz syndrome. And it was found that the underlying pathophysiology for that was in the transforming growth factor receptor pathway. And it turned out that they were looking for drugs that would actually target that. And they found that there was an, quote, older drug that was used for hypertension that actually would act on that pathway. So that's basically repurposing things that have been used in the past for other purposes. For This was for sort of garden variety hypertension, but that now can be used more specifically for this condition. But if you can use a drug for garden variety hypertension where there are millions of people suffering right. it, you've already amortized the cost of right. developing that drug exactly. for smaller populations. Exactly. So yeah. that was something that was great and was already out there. And that was such a big thing because it's like, okay, we don't have to go develop this. You know, we don't have to spend all this money in developing this drug here. We can use it for this indication. It turned out probably not to be the wonder drug, but still it gives the possibility that there are medications out there that have already been studied, that are already developed, that could be used for these rarer indications. So will that be possible? What I just described it as the moonshot bill, that was the one former Vice President Joe Biden was pushing very hard and it just got passed and it's there was a little bit of our Elizabeth Warren didn't like it because it takes money from some of the funding for larger diseases or more well-known diseases. So some of that research funding will go now over to the quote-unquote moonshot bill. But lots of folks are very eager to see what can happen with this legislation. They think it might give an opportunity for populations such as the one in 10 folks. Right. Mm -hmm. For exactly like what you said, I mean, the hypertension may be many, many people. But on the other hand, if you put all the one in 10 together, that's an incredible amount of people, too, and who have not been served as adequately as people with more common diseases. Keita, what is this, uh, the moonshot bill? Is that something that folks in the advocacy world were enthused about seeing passed? Yeah, people were really 
really excited about it, just pushing more research toward our groups. And and the more research, the better we will get. What does 21 Cures mean? I believe it does focus more on rare diseases, especially than the mm-hmm. moonshot does. Um, Moonshot's more broad. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah. So I was taken, I was reading the transcript of some testimony last year's Rare Disease Day at the State House, and this unidentified mother said she had been to Boston Children's Hospital 135 times trying to get answers. She said, I don't have anything other than a bunch of symptoms. What do we do? What do we do? Keita, what do you say to a mother like that? Don't give up. It's hard. Talk to as many people as you can. Go to the social media. Create a group. Figure out anyone you can talk to and and really just don't give up. Dr. Stoller, what's most promising in this field right now in terms of research? You've got those seven centers working on the Undiagnosed Diseases Network anchored here at Harvard, as we've said. They all feed into each other when a case comes up and bring the best of what they know about these uh, rare diseases to one place. But what have you seen recently? And by recently, I mean like the last five years or so in which you're really excited about and think could be quite powerful along the way. I think the new technology for diagnosing conditions like whole exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing, which looks at all of our genes. I have seen patients that we've diagnosed with conditions I never would have thought of in, you know, a million years. And I never heard of. I mean, a couple of them had like, you know, there's the second report, you know, ever written in the medical literature. And again, so I think that's very exciting. And then, of course, the next step is to get people involved in that research. I think a lot of people who have found these genes want to to actually look at what the effects are. And that hopefully in the future will then, like I said, lead to understanding the pathophysiology and developing drugs. So I think it's a a hunch to look through, sift all through all the genes, all the different variations you find, and then come up with a diagnosis that the genes that seem to fit the patient. And sometimes things don't fit perfectly, and we're learning much more. And I think with increasing knowledge comes the possibility of treatment. I think not to downplay for the families... But getting a diagnosis is so important, like the woman who came to Children's 135 times. You know, it can stop all of that and make it more targeted. Okay, you have condition X. Maybe there's heart involvement. Maybe there's eye involvement. But you don't have to go all the time seeking a diagnosis. You know what you're dealing with. You know what the prognosis is as more cases accumulate. So I think that's really very promising is this new technology and basically finding out more. What's rewarding to you as a professional in this field about looking really for a needle in a haystack over and over again? What drives you? It's a detective story, you know, and finding the answer for the family and seeing how gratifying the family is at the end is what's so important. I've had families that I've followed for many years, and then as the technology has improved, we've come up with the answer. And then it's like, you know, a sigh of relief and say, okay, now we know what we're dealing with and we can prepare better. They may want to have more children, so the recurrence risk becomes more obvious. And they can really then take it. And I've had families that have made Facebook groups and pushed the research. And I think that's what's the most gratifying for me. Kita, for yourself, here we are, another rare disease day uh, coming up. What do you want to see or what has been the best thing so far about increasing public awareness that you think has really worked? I know you talked about social media, but what do you want to see more of in terms of people understanding there are one in 10 people walking around with this rare disease that 
many times is not diagnosed. Well, as people grow up, we are, most of us were diagnosed as children and with amazing medical innovations and technologies, a lot of us are growing up, which is awesome. And now I want us to find each other. That's my big thing. I want to foster community. I want to be able to have that sense of camaraderie and sense of experience, shared experiences. So my hope is to see more connections, more communities that are built around these sometimes awesome things that will happen because of them. And there's strength in numbers, even if it's small numbers, right? Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Well, I've learned a lot in preparing for this, and I'm hoping that other people will be a little bit more cognizant now when we understand that one in ten people are affected. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Joan Stoller is a clinical geneticist at Boston Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. She is also a key research partner with the Undiagnosed Diseases Network. And Keita Christensen is the Outreach and Engagement Coordinator and Campforance Director for the nonprofit organization Next Step. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find links to the stories we discussed today on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app or take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Aswahe is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. WGBH.